and I've actually been listening in on uh, online on the podcast, uh, just kind of catching up, seeing where, where y'all have been. Y'all have been talking about how Jesus gives us a life of joy, a life of worship, a life of forgiveness, <laughs> hope, power, love, union, and truth. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing that y'all are spending time in the Gospel of John. There's few better ways to spend your time on a Tuesday evening. Um, tonight we're going to talk about how Jesus gives us a life of transformation, a life of transformation. And, uh, and that word transformation, it's interesting. It's, a, it's actually a deeply Christian idea um, because the word transformation alludes to the concept of taking something old and making it new or taking something broken and then repairing and restoring it. And uh, this has kind of recently come into vogue in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like we love old things that have kind of been transformed, right? Like barns transformed into wedding venues or like garages transformed into restaurants or Jewish community centers transformed into RUF discos or I don't know what this is. Um, you know, we just, we just sang the song, Beautiful Things, right? Like you make beautiful things, you make beautiful things out of us. That's, that's this idea of transformation. And, uh, and one of my favorite examples of transformation doesn't act- actually have anything to do with you know, furniture or houses or any of that kind of stuff, but actually it has to do with clothing. Uh, those of you who are studying marketing or advertising might want to pay attention to this. In 2011, uh, the company Patagonia ran an article, a full-page article in the New York Times um, on Black Friday, you know, like crazy shopping day right after Thanksgiving. And... Um, and this was, th- this was the ad. It was just a full-page article. It had a picture of one of their most popular fleece jackets. And then, get this, these words underneath it. Don't buy this jacket. Does anybody see that? It's like seven years ago. You, yes. Okay. Courtney Berry's nodding her head. You, she's seen this. Okay. So it's, it's like famous in the world of marketing because here, here, was, their, here was their thing. Um, it drew a lot of attention. Every single other company is trying to win our business on that particular day of the year. And here's this company saying, don't buy our stuff. And uh, what they were trying to do was they were trying to draw attention to what they call their worn wear program, which is Patagonia's, uh, the company's process of buying back old used apparel, like refurbishing it, like kind of fixing it, mending it, and then um, selling it back. And so what they were saying, their point was, look, don't go buy new stuff. Like trade in your old stuff, we'll fix it, we'll repair it, we'll transform it, and then we'll like get it back to you. And... uh, their, their whole deal was like the stitches, the tears, the stains on your jacket. Those things like tell a story. And that actually makes your jacket cooler, like more beautiful. Like it's a better jacket if it's got the stains and the tears and the rip than, than just the brand new one. And um, to my knowledge, the founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard, I, I do not think he's a Christian. But the idea that taking something beautiful and transforming it into something um, you know, more beautiful through the process of transformation. Like, that is a uniquely Christian idea, whether he knows it or not. Um, Because our God loves to mend beautiful things. He loves to restore and transform broken people. And the gospel is the good news. If you haven't heard this, I hope you hear it tonight. The gospel is the good news that God wants to transform you from wherever you are into somebody who is whole, who is put back together, um, something and somebody more beautiful. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, nothing and nobody is beyond repair. And everything can be transformed through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, Tonight we're going to examine the story of Mary Magdalene. That might be a familiar name to some of you, probably a new name to others of you. We're going to read this story in the Gospel of John, and then we're going to talk about it. So if you've got that little, little leaflet that was passed out, if you could pick it up and look at it, I think you'll find it helpful to read along as we go. 
So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that the resurrection transforms the grief-stricken. We're going to read about this woman named Mary Magdalene, and in this story, she is grief-stricken. So we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus transforms the grief-stricken, and it does so in three ways. It does so by being present to our grief. That's first. Second, presence transforming grief. And then third, giving a ministry of presence to our neighbor's grief. Okay? So we're going to talk about those three things, and we're going to do so as we read the story. So if you've got this in front of you, look with me. It says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white standing where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Okay, let me stop there. There's this, there's this little book um, by a woman named Barbara Roberts called Helping Those Who Hurt. And in this section about grief, here's, here's what she says. Get this. She says, In the past, the model for Christians was to keep a stiff upper lip and to endure pain and agony of loss with little or no expression of emotion. Even worse, there were Christians who would put on a happy face denying the pain of grief, which in effect denies the need for a savior and a comforter. But grief does not express a lack of faith in God. Instead, it can lead us to a deeper understanding of our need for God. I love that because in this scene, Mary Magdalene is grief-stricken. And I want to first observe that she is fully present to her grief. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. I mean, she's not running away from it. She's actually being, being present to it. She's not covering over her grief with busyness. And some of you might be thinking like, okay, I don't really know the context here. Why is she grieving? So Mary Magdalene, close, close friend of Jesus. Jesus has been crucified on a cross. He's been buried in a tomb. He's been dead um, for three days. She is grieving and she's going to the tomb of her dear friend to do nothing more than just cry there. She was crying at home, but instead she's just going to go and cry at the tomb. That's, that's her being present to her grief. It would, you know, Make more sense maybe for her to just run away, like distract herself, get busy, do something else, work on something, clean something, fix something. Instead, she just goes to the tomb to weep. She's being present to her grief. And she isn't, she isn't really doing anything else. She's only grieving. And I think it's worth pausing to notice how rare this is for really any of us today. Many people today, and especially Christians, do not know how to be fully present to grief. We have this tendency to either distract ourselves from our grief or maybe put on a mask, pretend our grief isn't actually grief, pretend it's something else. And so before we go any further in this story, I just, just want to say that we must remember that grief is the right and appropriate response to a sinful and broken world. If you read the story of the Bible from beginning to end, what you'll see is that even those who wholeheartedly trusted in God, like even all the characters who loved God, who trusted in God, who, who shaped their entire lives around following God, they still grieved, and they grieved deeply. Um, grief doesn't indicate a lack of trust in God. I think some of us might be tempted to think that. Like if you're, if you're too sad or you're too sorrowful, like, well, that must mean you don't trust God very much. That's not true. In fact, grief can be the very place where we meet God. Because being fully present to our grief is to be fully present to our need, right? To our need for a savior, our need for a comforter. Grief actually open, openly acknowledges our need and our loss. So grief opens the way for God to meet us in the place that we actually need him the most. 
and I don't, I don't know y'all, um, but I would venture to guess in a room this size, there are probably many of us who are, who are secretly grieving. Like something's happened either today or this week or this month or this semester, and, and you're grieving the loss of something. It's either the loss of a relationship or the, maybe a loved one died or something happened either in the classroom or on the athletic field or something. So you've, you've experienced some form of loss. And you haven't felt like you've been able to actually talk about it or be open about it. And so it's just, it's just in you. It's a secret grief. Now, I want to encourage you tonight to be fully present to your grief and resist the urge to distract yourself. Because it, it may be, it, it may be, that that is exactly the place that God is waiting to meet you and to comfort you in your grief. And if you distract yourself, you might miss him. And so I just want to talk about Mary for a second more here. Mary, um, to be clear, she doesn't really understand what's going on in this scene. Um, and I, I find that really helpful. Um, you don't have to understand everything in order to be fully present to your grief. <coughs> At this point in the story, Mary does not understand or believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, right? Like she doesn't understand that or believe that. It's a confusing, disorienting place for her. She doesn't know what's going on. Her pain is so deep, she barely reacts to the presence of angels in the empty tomb. Every, and this is just crazy to me because if you read the Bible, every other time angels appear in scripture, people freak out, right? Like they react the way any of us would react. They, they scream, they yell, they fall on their face. They like, they, it's, it's scary. And yet, what do we see with Mary? She doesn't act that way at all. Instead, like, she's, she's so focused on her grief, it doesn't even register with her that something else pretty crazy is happening. So Mary turns around. She sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. And we don't know exactly why she doesn't recognize him. That's interesting to me. I think we can safely assume that this resurrection body that Jesus had on the other side of death was perhaps similar to his former body, but um, especially in the way that maybe he still bore the scars from the nails and the spear, but, but it also looked somehow different. And that's mysterious to us, right? Let's just recognize that. We're reading the Bible. Whenever you read the Bible, you always hit things that you think, I don't know what that means. It's okay. You can hit that point. You can say, I don't know what that means. And so Mary's grieving. She's confused. She doesn't understand. She doesn't yet believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. She doesn't recognize Jesus, even though he's standing right in front of her. And that is the most comforting part of the story for me. How often does this describe me? Confused, unbelieving, not recognizing that God is at work right in front of me. But I just don't have the eyes to see it. And this might sound like a small matter, but I think it is in fact the opposite of the way we're taught to think about spirituality today. Today our society tells us that if you believe God is real, well then, well then God is real to you, right? Um, because your belief in him maybe like helps you get through hard times, right? That would be a normal thing many of us would hear. But here we see that Jesus is absolutely present with Mary Magdalene, despite the fact that she doesn't understand or believe or recognize him. So his presence is real even when she does not believe. And this is really good and comforting news to us because how difficult would the Christian life be if you had to believe in order for God to be real, right? That would be a tough one. You know, it's actually God's grace to us that he's present with us even when we don't understand or believe. And that's encouraging for me. I don't know about you, but faith is hard. <laughs> and so it is encouraging and comforting to me that in the moments when I do not believe, 
that God is real or I do not believe that he's with me or I feel like he's distant or I feel like I'm not close with him. Like, I look at this story and I go, yeah, it's actually possible for God to be standing right in front of you and for you not to know it. So the resurrection of Jesus restores the grief-stricken. First, because Christ is present to our grief. He's present to our grief. Now, second, his presence transforms grief. We're going to continue with the story. So if you've got it in front of you, read, read along with me. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And this is kind of funny. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Okay, so folks, in all the stories, in all the books of the world, and all the libraries of the world, there are few scenes more intimate um, and loving than this one. Jesus knows she doesn't recognize him, and he's not offended. Jesus knows um, his only thought is, is to care for her, right? So he says to her, like, why, Mary, why are you crying? Whom are you looking for? His first questions are attentive to her grief, even though there are much bigger things at play. And Mary responds, thinking he's the gardener, and asks where the body of Jesus is located. Um, okay. And so at this point in the scene, the misunderstanding has gone far enough. Jesus is willing to let it play for a bit, but now he's going to make it clear. Jesus is ready to reveal himself and give her the good news. And think of, just let your imagination go for a bit. Think of all the ways he could have done that, right? He could have said, like, it's me, Jesus. I'm the one you're looking for. He could have said, like, it is I. Like, he could have said, behold. Like, he could, there are all, all sorts of ways that he could have, like, this is like the big reveal, right? There are all sorts of ways that he could have done this, but instead, I mean, let's just jam on that for a second. This is the single greatest moment in the entire history of the universe. Not hyperbole. Christians believe the resurrection of Jesus is the single most important moment in the entire universe. And yet, in that very moment, he's not focused on himself. He's attentive to her. And the next words that he speaks, I think, are so beautiful. He chooses the most loving way to open her eyes. He just speaks her name aloud. Mary. It's interesting. You know what the word Mary means, the name Mary? Um, some historians think it, it, it means like bitterness or rebellion. But if you actually, if you trace the history of the name Mary all the way back through, you see it, it actually has its roots, its roots in, a, in an Egyptian name, um, which means Beloved. That's actually the root of the word Mary, beloved. You know, it's interesting. John chapter 10, earlier in this gospel, it says, To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. That's a quote from Jesus. Mary hears the voice of the shepherd. She recognizes his voice, and in an instant she is no longer con lost. She's no longer confused. She's no longer grieving. She's filled with joy. She spins around, and she cries out, Rabboni, and that's not a familiar word to us. It's a word that means teacher. Right? You might have heard the word rabbi before, but Rabboni is different. It's like this, it's an intensified version of the word. It's, it's an affectionate version. It means, it means favorite teacher. That's what it means. And so you have this interaction where Jesus is saying, beloved, and she's saying, favorite teacher. And these dear friends who have been separated by death are reunited. And so Mary's grief is transformed into joy by the presence of Jesus. She still doesn't understand. I mean, bear in mind, none, exactly none of her questions have been answered so far. 
The story of how God the Father raised him from the dead has not been told. How Jesus came to have a resurrection body that is different, yet similar to the one that he had before, has not been explained. And yet none of this matters to Mary in this moment. His presence is enough to transform her grief. His presence is enough. His presence is enough. You know, it's the most natural thing in the world for most people, especially Christians, to ask when we're grieving, where is God? It's a normal question. It's a normal to feel like God is distant when we're feeling the pain of loss. And so the question, where is God, is a very appropriate question. It isn't wrong to ask that question. I hope you know that. It's not wrong to ask that question. And that is, after all, if you think about it, the question that Mary is asking. She doesn't know she's asking that, but that's the question she's asking. She's saying, tell me where you've laid Jesus. She's saying, where did God go? <laughs> where is God? It's important for us to remember looking, that looking for the presence of God is a good thing as long as we look sincerely. You know, if we ask, where is God, and then continue to search out his presence, God is likely to reveal himself. And Jesus revealed his presence to Mary, not with a flashy miracle or some sort of intellectual explanation of how he's been there all the time, but he reveals himself by speaking her name. And that's how Jesus reveals himself to us, especially when we are grieving and we're asking, God, where are you? There's an Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapter 43. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. Friends, the Lord knows your name. He knows your name. He longs for you to open your ears to hear him speak your name so that he can reveal himself to you. And so I want to ask you tonight, are you, are you listening? Is that actually something you're listening for? Are you listening for the voice of Jesus or are you perhaps distracted? Um, I have a tendency to be um, intensely focused on things, like one thing at a time. Lewis is my fun friend. Lewis is the one who like gets me out of studying and like into doing like things with people um, because I'm too intense. And in fact, I'm so intense that um, it's not uncommon for my wife to be talking to me and for me not to even realize that she's like in the room speaking because I'm just intensely focused on something, right? Um, I think sometimes we don't hear the voice of the Lord because we're distracted. But other times when we're grieving, I think it's possible to be so intensely focused on our pain that we just tune everything else out. And so I want to nuance this a bit and say be, being present to your grief doesn't mean being single-mindedly obsessed over your pain. That's not what we mean. Instead, it means being attentive to our sorrow, lamenting over our loss, but listening for the voice of the Lord waiting for him to reveal himself. That's what we're talking about. And when we hear his voice, that's really all we need. To simply know that Jesus is present with you in a moment of grief or in a moment of pain, that's enough. That's all you need. His presence is enough to transform our grief. Um, Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. And we might still have unanswered questions for him. In fact, we'll probably will always have unanswered questions for God. And it's important to remember that the answers that God will give us will most likely come slowly over time. But answers aren't the primary thing that we need when we're grieving, and our God knows that, which is why his answers come slowly, but his presence comes immediately. Because his presence is the thing we need the most, even more than answers. And the presence of the resurrection Jesus is enough because his very presence is evidence and testament to the reality that he's conquered death, and therefore death no longer need hold any fear for us. The presence of the resurrection Jesus is enough because it demonstrates that the thing that we fear most, that our loved ones are lost and life will end and there's no hope, all of those things are untrue. 
and the things that we long for the most. A beautiful life of peace and joy, both with God, but also with our loved ones. That's the promise on the other side of resurrection. And so the presence of the risen Lord Jesus is enough because his presence is evidence that all the promises of God are beginning to come true. Okay, so we've talked about how the resurrection of Jesus restores the grief stricken first by because Christ is present to our grief and second because his presence transforms our grief and now um, his, he gives us a ministry of presence to our neighbor's grief. And let's not, let's not miss this part. So the next part of the story is really important. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Okay, so we've seen how this transformation moment, how Jesus is present to Mary in her grief, and how his presence transforms her grief into joy, and for many, uh, we might be tempted to stop the story there, right? It seems like a complete story, right? Things have changed. Things are better. Mary is happy. She's joyful again. Let's just end the story there. But the story's not complete because no gospel story is merely about our own healing. The movement of the gospel always turns us outwards towards other people. That's what the gospel does to us. It comes to us. It heals us. But then it turns us outwards towards other people. And so, yes, we are to receive the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yep, it starts there. Yes, we're to embody his gospel and allow it to transform our lives, right? It changes the decisions we make. It changes the way we live. Yes, to all of those things. But to what end? Is it like just for our benefit only? No, it it's actually transforms us for others, for the community. It's for our neighbor's benefit. And so when Mary's grief is transformed by the presence of Jesus... The very next thing Jesus does is commission her to go and to be present, get this, to the grief of the disciples and to announce to them the good news of the resurrection. And so not only does each one of us know someone who is grieving, someone for whom this season of life is marked by sorrow, but beyond that, we surely must know that, um, that our fellow students are each bearing a secret grief. I mean, you can, you can just assume that, Right? You can know that there are other people in this room that are grieving about things that they have not yet shared with you. And for those of us who are Christians and actually have and experience the presence of Jesus in our lives, sometimes we ask the question, we scratch our heads and we wonder, how can we minister to friends around us? And so I want to just propose to you this evening that a very likely place to start is simply by being present with your friends in their grief. That's a place to start. And it sounds kind of too simple for us, especially, um, you know, really, really bright students. I mean, it doesn't give us enough to do, right? Like so many of us are doers, and, and this doesn't seem like it gives us enough to do because that's the, we just underestimate how a powerful presence can be. And we, I think we overestimate how helpful our advice might be. Um, <laughs> presence, presence sounds simple. It is, in fact, remarkably difficult to be present, to just be present with somebody who is grieving. If you ever tried this before, then you know what I'm talking about. We would rather do just about anything else, right? We'd rather spring into action, right? Like, I'm a smart, capable person. I can fix this for you. No, you cannot. (laughs) We would much rather say something to make them feel better, to break the tension. And of course, we often make things worse with um, with our well-intentioned words, don't we? Right? You're seeking to be present to a friend who is grieving. You should avoid the temptation to say things like this. I know how you feel. I've been there too. Shut up. (laughs) 
If <laughs> this isn't about you, don't make it about you. Look at that. Someone's grieving. And your very first words made it about you and not about them. Don't do that. Or this, time will heal. You don't know that. Time only takes us further down the trajectory we are already on. And if that trajectory is not towards Christ, then time will not heal. So don't say that. Or this one, it's a favorite one, right? Everything happens for a reason. If you don't know the reason, that is not helpful. (laughs) This is not comforting. It's probably just going to deepen the pain, right? Especially, right? Like, especially if a loved one has died. Because then what you're basically saying is, it's better for them to be dead than to be alive, right? Everything happens for a reason. That is not helpful. It doesn't mean that a ministry of presence doesn't come with words. It does, but it comes with words like these. I'm so very sorry. I'm praying for you. I'm coming over to your dorm right now. Like, those are the words that the ministry of presence comes with. And so to have a ministry of presence to somebody else's grief is to avoid being directive and, instead, and like trying to fix them and change their feelings or rationalize what has happened. Instead, it's being supportive, it's being caring, it's being consistent, and it's being a reliable presence. Um, I have an author that I really like. His name is Henry Nowen, and he wrote this. He said, when we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means the most to us, we often find that it's those who, instead of giving advice solutions or cures have chosen rather to share our pain, to touch our wounds with warm and tender hands, the friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief, who can tolerate without knowing, without curing, without healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That's a friend who cares. I think this guy is describing a ministry of presence to a neighbor who is grieving. And we must recognize that the reason for emphasizing the simple presence over words or actions isn't because we don't deeply long to see our friends healed. We do. That's what we long for. But because we know that we are not the one that can ultimately heal them, right? We know that what they need more than anything else is to recognize that Jesus is present with them and that the power of his presence is truly the only thing that they need and ultimately the only thing that can transform their grief into joy. And so we're present with our grieving friends to help them listen for the voice of Jesus speaking their name. And if we're there to talk and to fix and to give advice, then we might end up mistaking ourselves for the healer. We're not the healer. Jesus is. We cannot restore the grief-stricken, but Christ can. And we who have known the joy of the presence of Jesus in our lives, we want our friends to know that joy as well. And so we're there to be faithfully present with them. And our presence can help them listen so that they can be fully restored. They can be transformed. Now, before we conclude, let me just kind of summarize because some of the things we've said, because we've said a lot. The resurrection restores the grief-stricken because Christ is present to our grief. His presence transforms our grief, and he gives us a ministry of presence to our neighbor's grief. Now, I hope that um, some of you, if not all of you, will continue this conversation Um, later this week as you gather over meals or walk around campus or sit and talk late into the night in each other's rooms um, you can just ask each other some of these questions where do you need Jesus to be present to you right now where where are you too distracted or focused on yourself to hear the voice of Jesus speaking your name who do you know that most needs you to be present with them in their grief um So we began our time this evening speaking about and talking about the beauty of transforming broken things. 
And Mary Magdalene here is beautiful. She is beautiful in this story for that very reason. She starts out broken in her grief. But the resurrection of Jesus transforms her. And Christians are called to be beautiful in that same kind of way. We're called to be a people who know our grief. We know the pain of this world. You know, a, a Christian who shies away from the sorrow of the world has nothing to offer anybody. So don't be that. No, we're called to be people who are transformed by the presence of Jesus. We're called to be attentive people, listening for the voice of our Lord and allowing his presence to change us. And we're to share a ministry of presence with our hurting friends, moving towards those who are hurting the most, not to heal them, but to listen to and recognize the presence of the risen Christ, the one who longs to heal them. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these incredible young men and women. Thank you for their gifts and their talents and their abilities. Thank you for uh, their intelligent minds. Thank you for their able and capable um, uh, bodies and and, uh, just the way that they are, um, I know all of them, doing so many things right now. Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of their work, you would allow them to pause and to be present and and even just be self-reflective and recognize the ways in which they may be grieving, the ways in which the pain of this world has, has hit them. And, and then in the midst of that, I pray that you would help them to, to listen, to listen carefully for your voice speaking their name, because we believe, Lord, that you are present with us. And then from there, I pray that you would give them the eyes to see their friends and, and roommates and teammates around them who are hurting. And would you give them just the, the ability to be simply and faithfully present with them. Not to fix them or to correct them or to try to heal them, but to help them listen for your voice. Uh, Lord, these are the kind of people that that we want to be. We want to be transformed by your presence. Please help us. We pray in your name. Amen.